Good morning, Four Corners Church. We come this morning in the Lord's strength and we seek Him in worship, in His strength. We can't even worship Him well at all this morning apart from His strength. Not in our own strength do we confide, but in His. And so we rejoice this morning. We love God's people this morning. We focus on His Word this morning in His strength and by His grace. And we come as those who are thankful, thankful for so many things. And one of the things that we are most thankful for is the Holy Scriptures. And so for this morning, we're going to go to Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. Exodus 32, 1 to 6. And I hope that all of you had ha- have had a nice Thanksgiving weekend with your families. And one of the things as we were going through th- on Thanksgiving evening, one of the things that we discussed as a family was that during this holiday, you often hear people direct their Thanksgiving into the air. Uh, you see that a lot on TV, especially as talk show hosts and others are reflecting on what they are thankful for. You see a lot of Thanksgiving going into the air. In other words, people say they are thankful but that gratitude is not directed to anyone in particular. They are quick to answer the question, for what, but leave out the question, to whom? What they are thankful for, but not to whom. As Christians, we recognize that everything we have is from the Lord. And so as was prayed earlier by Mark, a Thanksgiving is every single day. This is who we are as Christians. Everything we have is from the Lord. We are not merely thankful people. We aren't thankful in a vacuum. We aren't thankful in general. We aren't thankful into the air. We are thankful to him. Our thanksgiving, our gratitude is directed. It is personal. And this is part of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, You know, there's a lot of language in some circles about Spirit-filled living and what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit or to emphasize the Spirit. And sadly, what often gets associated with the Spirit is more ecstatic sort of physical expressions of worship rather than the sorts of things that are focused on in the Scriptures, And one of the great characteristics we find of being spirit-filled is in Ephesians 5, verse 20. Paul says in the preceding verses, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to unpack what that means, because we have to be honest, that's a pretty vague idea. We need some clarity. We need some concreteness. We need to know what exactly does it look like to be filled with. With the Spirit. What ought I to pursue and how ought I to gauge where I am spiritually? And one of the descriptors given there is in Ephesians 5, verse 20 giving thanks always and for everything. That's comprehensive, not just one day a year. Giving thanks always and for everything. And here it is to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we get a little bit of a gauge there, as I said before, as to uh, the extent to which we are growing in the Lord. We are maturing in our faith. We are walking in the Spirit. We, We get a gauge on that as we see here what it looks like to be in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be growing as a Christian, is to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our thanksgiving is a way of life, and it is very specific indeed. Not just in terms of what we're thankful for, many things go there, but in terms of who and through whom, to whom and through whom we are thankful. Last week, we finished looking at the tabernacle instructions, Uh, but everything we've read about the tabernacle so far has been between God and Moses. And you may have forgotten that, but what we've been going through, all of these chapters, beginning in chapter 25, all the way up through the end of chapter 31, which we finished last week, is a conversation, well, not not so much a conversation, but a download from the holy, infinite God of Israel to Moses. It is happening on the mountain. Moses has been with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the creator of heaven and earth. He has been with God on the mountain For 40 days and 40 nights. And you can go back in your Bible if you want to look. Chapter 24, verse 18, describes how Moses goes up on the mountain into the cloud. And he is with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, as we've come to the end of that instruction, (coughs) Moses' job, (coughs) excuse me, will be to go back down the mountain and convey all of this to the people. So the Lord has given this information as how the tabernacle is to be constructed, what the various objects are, how the priests are to function within the tabernacle. God has given this to Moses, not to keep to himself, but to go down the to the bottom of the mountain to bring that to the people. And you'll remember that the people are going to bring a contribution of of all of their things in order to build the tabernacle. Bazalel and Aholiab and others will be uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the work. So this is going to be communicated across the board to all the people. And so now Moses' job, after he has listened to the Lord, is to bring the Lord's message to the people. And, by the way, to bring the two tablets of stone, the tablets upon which the Lord has inscribed the ten words or the ten commandments. But there's a problem. While Moses has been with the Lord on the mountain, the people have been stewing and sinning, stewing over Moses' absence and devising an alternative religious path forward. A a new religious system, a a new set of truths, a, a new focal point for the Israelites in just 40 days and 40 nights. So today, we'll begin looking at the infamous golden calf incident and This is probably, if you've been in church at all in in the past, this is probably a story that you are somewhat familiar with. Uh, It is great to look at this in its context, as it is with any passage of Scripture. But to be able to get to this point within the storyline of Exodus really helps it to come alive. And there, there are ways that it comes alive after walking through all the previous chapters 
that simply doesn't happen even if you stand in front of people and come to the golden calf and give a 10, 20-minute introduction of all that has preceded. To walk through these fields, to walk through this wilderness, to stand at the mountain, to visualize the tabernacle, and then to come here. What an incredible contrast. The title for the sermon this morning is an unholy rebellion. We are moving from a holy conclusion, which was the title for last week's sermon, to an unholy rebellion. And this really is shocking after what we've read. And especially after what we read last week, as as all of the holiness language that we've been seeing throughout the tabernacle, the holiness of God, the holiness of his people, the need to atone for and to consecrate, the need to even deal with the taint of sin that would be transferred to the objects within the tabernacle. The separation from God on these various levels, one curtain, two curtains, three curtains. The incense, the sacrificial system there with the altar at the very center. Holiness, holiness, holiness everywhere. And then to come to a crescendo of holiness in last week's passage and then to literally fall off the mountain. To fall off the mountain. A holy conclusion to an unholy Rebellion. We've been immersed in holiness and now we're being slapped in the face with unholiness. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. Our passage, as I said, is Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. So a little passage for us today. Let me just say before we read this, this is, this is a... A paradigmatic passage. This is like the fall uh, as you read it in Genesis chapter 3. This is like that. It is so central and so illustrative of human sinfulness. It It is so much a paradigm for all the sin that is found in the remainder of the Bible and the sin that we see in our own lives. So let's look at it. Chapter 32, verses one to six. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make, get up, man, <laughs> the idea, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, And bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now it's not clear there who said that. It doesn't appear to be Aaron. It seems that the people, the the leaders of those who are calling for making this thing, when they see it, They point to it and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation. 
and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Interesting there. Verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his grace as we seek to understand and apply his word. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you're present here with us this morning, Lord. We are unholy in so many ways, Father. We praise you that though we are unholy and you are perfectly holy, Lord, that through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we can come to you and we can pray to you as our Father, Lord, we come to you boldly in the name of our perfect, spotless high priest. Lord, we praise you that he intercedes for us. And we praise you that your spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Father, we thank you that you are merciful and kind to sinners like us. Lord, that though our best efforts and our best acts are tainted with sin, you receive us through the sacrificial death and resurrection of our priest, prophet, and king. Lord, we praise you that Jesus is indeed perfect. And Lord, we come in his name this morning. We ask you to build us up, to sanctify us, to help us, to consecrate us, to Make us holy like Jesus to more and more grow us in him. Lord, we're thankful that we are together as Christians this morning. And that we, as we look to our left and our right, our front and our back, Lord, we see others who are in this fight with us. Others who call you Father. Um, Others involved in our prayers as we pray, our Father in heaven. So, Lord, we are so thankful that we are not alone, that we're not on an island, but we have one another. Lord, would would you use us in each other's lives and help us to be truly useful in your hand as an instrument, as we bear fruit, as we store up treasure in heaven, as we invest the talents which you have given us, Lord, and uh, bring them 10, 20, 30, 100 fold, Lord, would it be that all that you have given us would be multiplied in that way. Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word. We pray that it would be clear, that it would be clearly communicated and clearly understood and applied. Lord, would our hearts be supple in your hands and would we be ready as Abraham was in Genesis 22 when you called out to him to do a thing so awful in his own mind. Lord, He was ready, and he listened. He heard your voice. And Lord, would we hear your voice this morning? Would we be ready hearers, and would we be zealous doers? We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this golden calf incident really unfolds in various scenes. We're going to look at this first scene. They're really neat scenes, even as you think about what's happening uh, down on the ground, and then the, and then the conversation that uh, that comes after that between God and Moses, and then Moses coming down off of the mountain to engage with the people. 
So we're going to look at three things this morning as we take in this first scene of this golden calf incident. And so these are our points this morning, if you want to write these down. We're going to look at the demand in verse 1, the idol in verses 2 to 4, and then finally the worship in verses 5 to 6. So the demand, the idol, and the worship. So first... The demand. Look with me again at verse 1 as we put that clearly in view. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice it's Moses. Their focus is on Moses, not the Lord. Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, not Yahweh, the God who simply used Moses to bring the people out. At some point, while Moses is up on the mountain, the people have a realization. Moses sure has been gone for a long time. Uh, Anybody heard from Moses? Has anyone seen Moses come down the mountain yet? Hey, uh, you have a friend who's kind of closest over there where uh, Moses went up. Can can you ask him, has Moses come down yet? I mean, we've been just hanging out in our tent. Where is Moses? Nowhere. Moses has not returned. Back in chapter 24, we read how Moses went partially up the mountain with 70 of the elders of Israel and Aaron and his two sons. So you'll remember, that's the scene. and We've been in the tabernacle for a while, but you've got to go back to the last point in the historical narrative as it has unfolded, and that would be chapter 24. Moses goes up with Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. They go up halfway the mountain or partially the way up the mountain with 70 of the elders of Israel. And the Lord there appears to all of them. And it's, it's beyond our understanding what that would have been, but it is instructive to see that the focus is the pavement. So they're not describing the features of the Lord. Uh, oh, look, look at his ears or anything like that. There's none of that. There's the pavement upon which he manifests his glorious presence, whatever it is that they saw. The Lord appeared to them on this glorious sapphire pavement, and they enjoyed a covenant meal with the Lord. Now, we've talked a lot about representation as we've discussed the high priest. The high priest goes in to the holy place, and and he goes into the most holy place. He represents the people before the Lord. He wears the names of the Israelites on his body, on his chest, and on his Shoulders, And in the same way, these 70 elders, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and Moses, function as representatives of the people as they halfway up the mountain commune with God in this covenant meal. They eat and drink with Yahweh. They eat and drink on behalf of the entirety of Israel. Then... We read that Moses left Aaron and her in charge and went up the mountain with his assistant Joshua. 
Uh, So Joshua goes up with Moses, and Aaron and her are in charge. Anything that needs to be settled, any disputes, we know that Jethro had helped Moses to reorganize the people so that he could enact better judgment. He, He would not be so taxed all day long making decisions on cases regarding the law and cases and disputes among the people. Now Moses has left oversight of all of that to Aaron and her as he goes up on the mountain to be with the Lord. That was the last scene. The last scene before we moved into the tabernacle instructions. Well, now we're back at the bottom of the mountain. And we see what's been happening. And we're not given any specific time references. We don't know at what point in the 40 days. Was it day 7? Was it day 16? Was it day 32? Was it Day 37, 38, 30, we're not given specific details, although we know that these festivities are still happening because as Moses comes down, Moses and, and Joshua hear what is happening in the camp. So we're not given specificity here, but we know that this has been going on down at the bottom of the mountain. The people have been worrying murmuring, and scheming. And we're just given a little snapshot of what's been going on as they speak in verse 1, but there's so much present here. You can see what's underneath these words, worrying, murmuring, scheming. They are fearful and impatient, wondering why Moses has not returned and what that means for their future. We are supposed to go into this nice land. The desert has been okay, I guess, because God has given us some food every morning. By the way, once again, all the sinfulness we see of Israel, they are doing this against the Lord as they are digesting or potentially even eating God's provision. So they have had food. They have had water. But they really want to just go ahead and make their way into that nice land, dispossess those people that are there, and have cities, land flowing with milk and honey, all the pleasures of life that really they have never known, and some pleasures of life that they had in Egypt, at least full bellies and so forth, that they have not experienced to some degree in the wilderness So they are fearful and impatient. They want Moses to come back, and he hasn't. What does this mean for them? So they gather. They gather in mass number and come antagonistically to Aaron. He is the brother of Moses. He was Moses' partner in confronting Pharaoh. He was invited up the mountain, and Moses left him and her, and her might be um, Aaron's assistant in the way that Joshua is Moses' assistant. That's a possibility. Some commentators have speculated that. So really, it's Aaron and his assistant, her, possibly. So it appears, at least in part, that Aaron is now in charge. He is their leader now. So they bring him their list of demands. They bring him their demand up. Make us gods who shall go before us. And then they give the reason. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
The language used here for Moses is grumbly and dismissive. Uh, it, it could be translated, as some commentators have translated, this fellow Moses or this guy Moses. Well, where is he? He's just left us here to rot. He's just left us here alone with no future direction. You can sense the past frustration, and it brings us back to the grumbling passages before Sinai. This is not the first time that this sort of attitude or this sort of disposition has been present in the Israelites or among the Israelites. So let me just read you three verses from before Sinai. This is before they got to the mountain. You would think that all that they had experienced at the mountain would have made what I'm about to read unthinkable. And they go beyond, this is the important thing to see, they go beyond what they have done before. The sins they have committed before Sinai pale in comparison to what they do now, after God's manifestation of his glorious presence before them, after God speaks to them, after all the provisions, gracious provisions that God responds with, in the midst of their grumbling. So here they are, chapter 15, verse 24. You'll remember when we were looking at these. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we, we drink? And by the way, uh, their frustration is directed in two places, but it, Moses is the one who gets the brunt of it. So Moses has been beat up on before Sinai, and now we see this frustration kind of coming back up to the surface. That past bitterness towards Moses from before coming back up to the surface. It's still there. It's still there. 15.24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Chapter 16, verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You're going to kill all of our children, Moses. You're going to kill all of our wives. What have you done? Chapter 17, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said... Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses took some beatings. He took some punches. But now we see that frustration coming back out in the way that they dismissively and grumbly, in a grumbly way, speak of him here. So what do the people want? What is their objective they want some man-made gods who shall go before them. Ones they can see. Ones they can see. Ones they can own. Ones they can control. Ones in which they can depend on their own sense perception rather than by faith walking with the unseen God. They want man-made gods who will go before them. They want idols. What they really want is a new religious agenda. As I said, one that they can control 
and see, and also one that is more familiar to them, one that kind of brings them back to Egypt. That's what they grew up with. That's what they saw. That's what their parents saw and their grandparents saw, their great-grandparents saw. For generations, they were in Egypt. Something like that back in the homeland, at least as some of them probably understood it. All of this, all of this, despite what they heard so clearly from the Lord himself from the mountain. And let me preface this by saying, they heard God speak directly. We know that Moses came down off of the mountain with the book of the covenant, and he read that in the hearing of the people. So all those little laws about, well, not little laws, but all those detailed laws about your neighbor's ox and so forth that we went through in the book of the covenant, those were not delivered directly to uh, the Israelites. Those were given to Moses, and he read all of those. But the ten words, the ten commandments were given verbally, audibly to Israel. As an entire nation, they heard it from the mountain in blazing fire and thunder to such a degree with such display of power and majesty that they were afraid after that to have any discourse with God whatsoever. Moses, you go do that. We're going to stay down here. Just tell us what God says. We're we're just going to listen to what you say from God. We, we don't really want to experience that again. Here's what the Lord said at the beginning of the ten words, the ten commandments. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your God, and I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who redeemed you. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me or in my presence or before my face. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It came with a threat. A transgenerational threat. God did not just reveal to them, this is precisely who I am. This is precisely what you must do and precisely what you must not do. But he said to them, if you fail in this, I will punish your sin. I will punish it from generation to generation. He said, I am a jealous God. And he said that to do these things, to transgress these commands, is to hate God. That's exactly what he says there. To those who hate me. To hate God is to rebel against his word. We, we don't think about that when we think about hate. We tend to think that you have to snarl or throw something, or yell, or have really antagonistic thoughts about. Fill in the blank. 
That's what we associate with hate. But what we see here is that simply to disregard God, simply to set him aside and to replace him or to supplement with him some other God is to hate him. And this makes sense of what Paul says when he describes all of humanity in Romans chapter 3 or chapters 1 through 3. He refers to haters of God. Those who hate God. Our world is filled with haters of God. Listen to that. Not just people who uh, have decided to be a little selfish. Not just people who have given their lusts and passions over to excess. No! God's decree upon the world, God's judgment of the world is this, that the world is filled with haters of God. What a wonder it is that some of us, by God's grace and his spirit, love him. We love him. That's what it means to be salt and light in the world. It means to be lovers of God in a sea of God-hatred. To be those who love the one whom the world hates. They do this despite God's word to them on the mountain. And they do this despite what they had committed to the Lord in chapter 24 verse 7. After they've heard the words and Moses has read the book of the covenant. This is what we read. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's that's breathtaking. They didn't say that years ago. They just said that like 40 days ago, maybe 17 days ago, maybe 25 days ago, whatever it is. They just said that. All that the Lord says, we will do, we will be obedient. Obedient. Well, until we're not. So I want to look at a few implications here for us as we kind of take in just this first verse. Notice the vice sisters. Notice this package of vices, or I'll say vice brothers. Vice sisters, vice brothers, vice package. Notice this little package of vices that is implied in verse 1. Impatience, fear, complaining, ingratitude, discontent. You can see all of that underneath these words. It's a little vice package, but here's what I want you to see. This is so important. These are not merely vices. Notice this. These are not merely don'ts, avoidances, things to stay away from. Notice here that these create the seedbed for idolatry. That's how we are meant to understand these things. Fear and grumbling and patience, complaining and gratitude, discontent. This is the seedbed for idolatry. Let me say it more emphatically in this way. These constitute the soil for apostasy, for walking away from God. May it be. That none of us in this room apostatize, walk away from our faith. 
walk away from the Lord. But we see it, right? We read of it. We hear podcasts of people charging ahead, this or that ministry, pastors and missionaries and others serving within churches, walking away from the faith, Christian authors, singers, walking away from the faith, apostasy. We might be tempted to think that the seedbed for apostasy is really intellectual. It's really just a matter of sort of thinking about this idea and that idea, and of course that plays a part. But the scary thing to consider for all of us is that the picture we get here is that the walking away from the Lord, the replacement of God, the apostatizing from true and right religion grows out of the soil of impatience, fear, complaining, ingratitude, and discontent. I would venture to say there's not a single apostate who has not seethed toward God in his own or her own life over something that God has not done, over something that God has disappointed them in rather than mere propositions when comparing philosophical and religious systems. No, it's in the visceral. It's in the everyday soil of life and our responses to trials, to difficulties, to harsh realities of a fallen world. It is out of that that we walk away. Walk away. This incident highlights The problem that we as human beings have with waiting. We hate to wait. And we see it in all of our children, but we do it as well. We do it as well. Our kids hate to wait and we hate to wait. We're just grown children. We don't like to wait on things. It is something we absolutely loathe. Waiting in traffic. That's how you know. You see, you're all by yourself. Nobody can see you. Maybe you're in a different town. Nobody's even going to drive by who knows you. You can just flip out because you don't want to wait. We hate to wait. And we see here this problem in the human heart. We see it among the people of God. Because waiting demands trusting in God's plan. God loves to make us wait. We hate to wait and God loves to make us wait. Why? Because in the waiting is the testing. In the waiting is the refining. In the waiting is the trusting. You know, all the things that bring us to everlasting life. All the things that give us eternal glory and bliss. All the things that result in presence with God forever in perfect joy. You know, those things. Because God loves us. He loves our good. He seeks our ultimate good. Not a superficial, passing, vaporous good. He seeks our long-term good. And for that reason, the Lord loves to make us wait. This rebellion happens in the context of miraculous redemption. Think about what has happened just in no time. Months, 
months, a couple of months, a few months, God has miraculously redeemed his people. Remember what they sing to him in Exodus 15, all of these praises, a powerful theophany from Sinai, a clear and glorious revelation of God's law, and a glory cloud that they can actually look up and see at the top of the mountain. You may think, well, all those things are past tense. It's easy to forget. All they have to do is just look up. All they have to do is look up at the top of the mountain and they will see this incredible glory cloud that Moses has entered into to be in God's presence. Past and present revelation. This is a testament to human depravity. This is a testament to the Lord's assessment of the human heart both before and after the flood. Note that. God essentially says the same thing about the human heart that he does before the flood, after the flood. It's a testimony to total depravity, to human depravity. And it is a reminder of how much we need all that the tabernacle points to. And in that sense, it's a perfect uh, transition. All this tabernacle, all this atonement, all this blood, all these sacrifices, all these pleasing aromas, and this high priest and the representation and the mediator, and then you go down the mountain. So there's a sense in which it smacks us in the face and blows our mind that this could happen, but there is also a sense sense in which, of course, we have to see human sin to make sense of God's grace depicted in the tabernacle. God shows us how much we need the blood, how much we need the mediator, how much we need Christ. When we see all these things in our hearts, we don't run from Christ, we run to him and we receive his grace. So we see the demand. We took a little time on that because it really does set up what we read that follows. So now we go to the idol Verses 2 to 4. Look at those words with me. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. At this point, we are expecting outrage on Aaron's part. What? That's what you expect as you're reading through the story. They they come to Aaron. They say these things. You expect Aaron to pull out a very large whip or, or a very large rod and just start going at him. Right? That's what you expect to happen. Outrage. After all, Aaron has had a front row seat to all of God's glorious acts since Moses first returned to Egypt. He's been on the front lines. He is a full insider. And in fact, he will go on to be an insider in the sense he's going to go all the way to the Ark of the Covenant. If anyone other than Moses is to view this demand of the people with utter outrage, it would be Aaron. But that's not what happens. We'll talk more about what may be going on in Aaron's mind later, but for now we need to see that Aaron offers no pushback. 
There's, there's no argument here. Now, uh, maybe we're, we're not told all the little details. Maybe this happened over a period of time. Maybe he had heard the murmuring. Well, we don't know all of those details. But what the narrative gives us is that there is no pushback. There's no quarreling. There's no back and forth. There's no pleading with the people to stop this evil like there was with Lot. Do you remember Lot? Uh, when the angels come and they stay with him and Lot sees, he goes out the door. He says, stop. This is evil. And then they're going to attack him. And so the angels pull him in. They blind everyone at the door. Remember that? Well, we don't even see that. Instead, he sets idolatry in motion. He provides a solution to the people's problem. Bring the gold earrings. By the way, these are the earrings hanging on the ears of the people as they heard God speak his law from the mountain. I don't think that's accidental. We, we think of earrings, we think of ears, we think of ears, we think of hearing. And in fact, often in Hebrew, give your ears to is, is an idiom for hearing God's word. With the very ears that they heard God's word, they will take off those earrings and they will make this abomination. He tells them to bring the gold with the implication that he will melt it down and construct an idol. Now remember that this is the gold that was given to them by the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Where did the people get these golden earrings? They, they were slaves. Well, they got them from the Lord's grace. God had worked in the hearts of the Egyptians, so the Egyptians just loaded them down with precious metals and fine garments. So they go out rich, they go out wealthy, and now they're going to use those very gifts from the Lord in this rebellion. Not only is it the gold in the past that was given to them by God's grace, it is the gold that should be used for the tabernacle. And this gold has a purpose, and it's not to build an idol. This gold's purpose is for the praises of the I am. But we see here what Aaron does. He builds an idol, a golden calf. And the word used here is actually referring to a bull in its prime, probably like a three-year-old bull. Uh, so this, you, know, you think calf, you think of sort of a weak sort of creature. This is not what is being intended here by this golden calf. It is rather referring likely to a bull in its prime. It is not denoting weakness, but strength, virility, fertility, all of those things. The bull was commonly associated with divinity in the ancient world. We see this in Egypt with the Apis bull representing the god Ta. We see it with the Canaanite god El, who is often referred to as a bull. And we even see it with Baal, the, the infamous uh, false god of the Old Testament that we frequently read about. This Canaanite deity was associated with bulls as well. So this is really the air that is being breathed. Don't, don't see this as some sort of weird, isolated thing. This is syncretistic. This is borrowing from what's around them, what they will see in Canaan and have heard about and are familiar with to some degree, and then what they had lived among in Egypt. 
We see this later with Jeroboam the first in 1 Kings chapter 12 with the two golden bulls. We see this happening again later. I'll read that, 1 Kings 12, 28 to 29. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So he just repeats the same thing that was said there. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So he tries this again, paying no attention to what had happened. We see the same thing, a recapitulation. This is a direct violation of the first and second commandments. And this little set of verses moves from construction to confession. Look at the latter part of verse 4. And they said, this is... This really is the climax in, in, of these verses. As you read this, you hear these words. They are atrocious. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. Not Yahweh, not the glorious I Am who came to Moses in the burning bush, the God who split the sea. Not that one. Or some perverse understanding of that. We'll talk a little more about that in a moment. As to precisely how they relate this to Yahweh. But here. This. Whatever it represents for them. Brought them out of Egypt. They are ascribing the saving work of Yahweh to this piece of metal. This pitiful piece of metal. Psalm, Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22, says this about the incident. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God. That's the language Paul uses in Romans 1. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Wow. That's human sin. The fundamental problem with sinners is it's a worship problem. It's a worship problem. We worship the wrong one, the wrong thing. We worship things instead of the one who gave all things existence. It goes on to say, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea, the likes of which we've never seen in our lives. Amazing things that the Lord did at the Red Sea. I mean, absolutely incomprehensible what God did in parting that sea. A pillar of water on one side, not some marsh that just dried up through natural phenomena. A pillar of water on one side and a pillar of water on the other. And they walked through on dry ground. Amazing. If we would have been there, we would have never done that. No. We would have all probably done the same thing because we do it. It is the sad state of the human heart. Some implications here for us as we finish on these set of verses. First, there's the question, is this polytheism or depicting Yahweh? And it kind of amazes me how much commentators debate this sort of thing. Uh, because it really, I think it's a both and. You know, the question they, they ask is, okay, is this a violation of the first commandment? in that they have replaced God with another deity or another set of deities? 
Or is this a violation of the second commandment in which they have depicted the right deity wrongly? Or they have made an idol of the right deity. So they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're worshiping him through this golden calf. And the problem with that sort of need to draw a line and a distinction is that idolatry is simply a messy business, right? That's what we need to understand. Idolatry is messy. Replacing God and supplementing God are blended together in this toxic soup of sin as we think about rejecting the Lord. The plural verbs suggest that they really are moving into polytheism here. The one calf, the one object may suggest that they are instead viewing this as a depiction of Yahweh. But it's interesting, the Israelites do not use the name of Yahweh when they make this demand of Aaron. So the point I want to make is, whether they are worshiping multiple gods or a different god or depicting Yahweh with this calf, the same is true of what we read in Psalm 106, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. We also need to notice this mass defection among the people and the pressure to conform. We're going to see more of that in our culture. Christian churches, Christian pastors, Christian leaders, just sort of caving in to the demands of the culture. Mass defection. We're told that in, in the New Testament, we're told various places that at the, as the times come to an end, there will be mass defection from the faith. Not an ingathering of more and more people, but people walking away, showing themselves to be false believers. And when there is mass defection, there is always the pressure to conform. And that's precisely what we see with Aaron. He falls over. He caves to the demands of the people. Finally, we need to consider here that the gifts are used to replace the giver. The gold are the gifts. These gold rings, as you lay, think, imagine these being laid out in a big old pile. Huge pile of golden jewelry. It would have been a massive pile. All, every little piece, a gift from the Lord. And here we see that the gifts are used, the gifts themselves are used to replace the giver. That is precisely what we do when we idolize anything or anyone or any experience in this life. We take something that the Lord has given us, our health, our spouse, our family, our job, our money, our car, whatever. We replace him with it. But he's the one who gave it to us. All of it. Every sock that you've ever put on your foot is from the Lord. And every breath that we take, as Mark prayed earlier, is from the Lord. Many gifts, are we using the gifts to replace the giver? Remember, we owe every hair, every breath, and every cell in our bodies to the Lord. Finally, we see worship. Look at verses 5 to 6 as we finish up this morning. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, we need to note that our picture of Aaron here is mixed. This is a complicated portrayal of Aaron. It really is. On the one hand, he is the one who brings the people's plan to fruition. He will later say that the calf just kind of popped out of the fire. That's not how it went down. That doesn't happen. Metal objects are inanimate. It didn't pop out of anything. It was put together, placed in there, molded, and all the rest by Aaron or those whom Aaron had charged with the duty. He gathers the material and makes the idol. But we have to recognize that on the other hand, here we see the name Yahweh on his lips. The name Yahweh is not on anyone else's lips in this passage. But Aaron uses the name of Yahweh for the Israelites, the rest, it appears that any gods will do. Sure, I mean, Yahweh, I guess, but maybe Yahweh and, or maybe let's just get rid of Yahweh altogether and let's just replace him. There's plurality, the verbs are plural, there's singularity with the one calf. It's all mixed up, it's messy. But Aaron keeps Yahweh in view. It is as though Aaron here is pulling back the reins a little as he declares a feast to Yahweh. And you also see his conscientiousness with building an altar and consecrating worship. Now, it's it's complex. What is going on in this man's head? It's hard to discern. It's not spelled out. But it's noteworthy that there appears to here in Aaron be a different... To be a different way of thinking about this than among the rest of the people. And that's the reason I said before he conformed to this mass defection. Here we have the natural outworking of idol making. We have worship. Where idols are made, they will be worshipped. Exodus 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now some of you grew up Catholic. Some of you have been to uh, Catholic shrines and churches, and it it is appalling to me, having been to St. Peter's in the Vatican and been to so many of these places, and to see the way in which Christians, professing Christians, bow down before statues or use candles before this painting or that to, to go into God's presence and to somehow think that this is acceptable to the Lord, that this is not Sinful, that this is okay to do. The Ten Commandments make clear that where objects are made to become a focal point of worship, they will be worshipped. The painting becomes more than just the sacred heart of Jesus painting. It becomes something that you dwell on, you fixate on, something by which you approach the Jesus in that painting. It's no different from the paganism that has characterized man from the beginning. Worship of objects where idols are made as a means of approaching God, they will be worshiped. 
Chapter 20, verse 5 of Exodus, you shall not bow down to them or serve them comes immediately after a reference to not making them at all. Offerings are brought. And notice that they are the same offerings brought previously to the Lord. Chapter 24, verses 4 to 5. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now that's amazing. They had just sacrificed to Yahweh oxen. They had sacrificed the very thing that they are worshiping. They had sacrificed oxen to the Lord as burnt offerings and peace offerings. And now they've turned and they're doing these very same sacrifices and offerings to an ox. So what do the people do? They commune with this or these supposed gods And they rise up to play. That's where the text ends. They rise up to play. Now, there's a lot of debate among commentators what is in view here. And I think there are probably two extremes, as many have pointed out. There's the extreme that wants to see here nothing more than just joviality and celebration. And then there's the extreme that wants to see here some sort of wild mass orgy. Neither of those really seem to be in view There does appear to possibly be a sexual component to this, particularly as you look at this verb. The verb is to laugh, and the verb is used of Isaac with Rebecca. It's when the, uh, he, he looks out the window and he sees Isaac with his wife and realizes that that is his Wife, there's a, a sort of physical, uh, possibly sexual playfulness involved in that particular scene. But there's nothing more here to suggest that, that that's a full-blown act, some sort of orgiastic feast that doesn't appear to be the case. We do know that God had given specific instructions not to expose nakedness within the tabernacle and at the altar. So there does seem to be some role for that kind of thing here as the people are are playing, they're celebrating, they're, they're just sort of going off. And you imagine the drinking that's going on too. We really don't know precisely what they did, but we know that the whole scene is an abomination to the Lord. And here's the thing we need to understand it's not so much the, the emphasis on the sexual that we get here. It's this. Here the people have done a grievous thing. And their consciences are not troubled a bit. That's what we need to see. That's where we need to focus. It's not as though they've done this thing and they're sitting around going, should we have done that? That might not have been wise. That, oh, I don't know about this calf just sitting there. It's not doing anything. We've seen the Lord do stuff. Calf's doing nothing. No. This is 
reckless abandon. This is wild embrace of idolatry. This is full on walking away from the Lord. So whatever sexual connotations are in view here in play, at the very least what we need to understand are seared consciences entirely going headlong into the celebration of this evil. This is full on idolatry. And it begins with a grumble. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are so merciful to us. We thank you, God, that we will go on to read how you will show grace to your people. You will give new commandments after Moses breaks them. You will use Moses as a mediator picturing Christ. You will strike some dead, but you will spare the nation. And you will eventually bring them into the land. Lord, what wonder at your grace. Total covenant rejection, total covenant breaking, and you will be gracious to your people. Lord, we see here a little picture of what we get at the end of Romans 11. As Paul praises you for your infinite wisdom and your infinite kindness. And he says that in the end, all the Gentiles will praise you for your mercy. And all the Jews will praise you for your mercy. Lord, you are a God of mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you this morning and find mercy for our sinfulness, Lord. We praise you. That you are not far off. We need not travel anywhere. We need not pass through doors or veils. We come this moment into your presence. Would we all seek you for mercy out of sinful hearts, but hearts as Christians that have been remade. We praise you, Lord, for that great grace that you have given us a new heart. A new heart with which we can truly, indeed, love you. We thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.